All right, Exodus chapter 24 this morning. For the past month, we've been in the throne room. The first week, we went with Isaiah into the throne room of guidance. The next week, we went with the Hebrew writer in chapter number 4 of the book of Hebrews into the throne room of grace. The next week, we went with John in Revelation chapter number 4 into the throne room of glory. Last week, we went with Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter number 1. We didn't go into the throne room, but the throne room came to us, and we saw the throne room of goodness. This morning in Exodus chapter 24, I want us to preach for a few moments on the throne room of the giving of the law. Exodus chapter number 24, let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, And he, speaking of the Lord, And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice, and said all the words which the Lord hath said, will we do. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and built an altar under the hill, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Then went Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone. And as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. Let's read verse number 10 once more. The Word of God says, And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in His clearness. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the opportunity to be in Your house. Now, Lord, I come before You and I ask for Your help and for Your strength. Lord, I pray that You'd fill me with Your Spirit, that You would speak through me this morning the exact words You'd have uh, those here, including myself, to hear. Lord, You and You alone know what we need. So, God, we humbly surrender ourselves to Your tutelage and to Your guidance and ask, Father, that You would lead us in all that we do. Lord, You know the hearts of each and every person here. If there's any lost and undone among us, show them their need of Calvary. But Lord, I pray above all things that You'd be glorified. Father, we love You this morning. And we ask all this in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have a most astounding verse in Exodus chapter number 24. In verse number 10, the Bible says about Moses and Aaron, 
Nadab and Abihu. Now you say, who's Nadab and Abihu? Those are the sons of Aaron. They were, by the way, killed later on for offering strange fire unto the Lord. So let me say this. Sometimes there's a danger when you've been in the throne room. You'll do anything to get it back. Amen. Even if it means strange fire. But God had to kill them later because of that. And 70 elders of Israel. Now I'm going to make a confession to you. Is that okay? I'm going to confess to you that I've read this probably a hundred times, maybe a thousand times, and I've never before really noticed what's said in these verses before us. In fact, some of you may have thought to yourself as we read this passage, huh, I have never noticed that verse before. At least that's how it struck me. And I think the reason why is because we know so little about the throne room. It wasn't until I really began to study in Ezekiel chapter 1 and began to sort of see what Ezekiel saw, not not with the physical eye, but, but in my mind, I began to see and understand what Ezekiel saw, that I began to realize that what we have before us in Exodus chapter 24 is just another of the many throne room experiences in the Word of God. Now you say, preacher, what is a throne room experience? Well, I would say there are two answers to that. One of the answers is this. In a literal sense, it's times when human beings, whether through a vision or whether uh, physically, uh, they ascend into the throne room of God or the throne room descends where they're at. Now, if you'll come tonight, I'll explain to you why that doesn't happen anymore. I'll explain to you why God doesn't do that anymore. Let me say this. God has a throne room on earth right now. So I didn't know that. Sure He does. What know ye not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost? He had a throne room in the Old Testament, and it was the tabernacle. He had a throne room uh, in the Old Testament, and it was the temple after the tabernacle. He had a throne room in the ministry of Christ, and it was on the Transfiguration Mount when He sat down in all of His glory upon the Son of God. And in this day that we live in, He has a throne room on earth, and that's the believer. He indwells the believer. And so that's why this doesn't happen anymore. You still have to come tonight, by the way, amen? But... uh, that's, that's the reason that, that we don't see this anymore. But there were a few times in Scripture where God, in a special way, took His throne room and sat down in the midst of a situation. I'd say in a spiritual sense, it's any time when we're consciously in the presence of God. You know, we're always in the presence of God. The Bible teaches that our God is an omnipresent God. Uh, that uh, that uh, his eyes run to and fro, uh, that he sees the righteous, he sees the wicked. There is nothing, in a sense, that is outside of the presence of God. God, in a sense, is omnipresent. But let me say this, Christians don't always live like God's right there with them. But we ought to, amen? We ought to live in the conscious presence of God. We ought to live knowing. You remember what Elijah said when he stood before Ahab? We'll get to preaching in a moment. I just, you're getting used to me and I'm getting used to you and that's how this thing goes, amen? If we was on a date, we'd be talking about the weather, but we're not, so I'm just talking about the Bible a little bit. You remember what happened whenever Ahab, when he stood in Ahab's palace. You remember what he said? There he is. He's standing before the king of Israel, standing before a man that hates him. He's standing before a man that could call for his head and not, I mean, to beat it all, he's got bad news to deliver. He's getting ready to tell him that it's not going to rain for a good spell. And you know what he says? He says, as the Lord God liveth before whom I stand. He was in a throne room down here, but he was also in a throne room up there. He was consciously living in the presence of God. We ought to live that way, don't you believe so? But here in Exodus chapter 24, we have a different reason that the throne room makes a visitation to this earth. 
The reason is the giving of the Old Testament law. God has called His people and borne them upon sovereign and loving wings out of the land of Egypt. He has carried them through the wilderness. And here they are at Mount Sinai. And the throne room of God comes and sits down so that He might make a covenant with His people. You know, really this story begins a little bit earlier. In fact, I want you to turn with me back to chapter 19. Would you do that? Chapter 19. Now, some of you might say, well, I see that there's a throne there. I see that he was on a paved work of sapphire. I see that they saw the God of Israel. But how do we know this is the throne room? It doesn't really look anything or sound anything like what Ezekiel saw. Oh, but let's take a moment and let's talk about the character of this throne room. Look in chapter number 19. You can take, if you want to take the time to read from the beginning of the chapter, you can. That's where the narrative begins. But I want you to look at verse number 16. The Word of God says, And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. Now, most of you have read that at least a few times in your life. But I want you to notice that what we're seeing here is basically what Ezekiel saw. In fact, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter number four, or chapter number one, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter number one. Let me just read a few of these while you're turning there. Remember what it says. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud. It says uh, that the mount Sinai was all together on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. We just read it. You know what I'm saying here. Look over in Ezekiel chapter number 1. Let's say a word very quickly about the sights that came down on Mount Sinai. What did he say he saw on Mount Sinai? He said, I saw lightnings and I saw a great cloud. Look at verse number 4 of Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel says, And I looked and behold a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself. And a brightness was about it and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Look down at verse 14. He says this about the cherubims that were there uh, underneath the throne. He says, And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightnings. We see that the sights are nearly similar. We see that Ezekiel, he sees a cloud, he sees lightnings, he sees smoke, he sees fire, and whenever you get to Sinai, you see a cloud, you see lightnings, you see smoke, you see fire. What about the sounds? What does he say? He said there were sounds like thunder and like a voice of a trumpet exceeding loud. Look at verse 24 of Ezekiel chapter 1. Wonder what that sound was. He says this, And when they, speaking of those cherubims, when they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of great waters, as the voice of the Almighty, the voice of speech, as the noise of an host. 
When they stood, they let down their wings, and there was a voice from the firmament that was over their heads when they stood and had let down their wings. So as they stand there at the mountain... They say, we hear thunderings, we hear the voice of a trump. By the way, this isn't my message, but you know there's coming another day where we're going to hear the voice as of a trumpet. That's when we're called into the throne room the way that John was. The throne room is sitting down on Sinai. They hear the same noise. What about the smoke? We see the sights, we see the sounds. What about the smoke? Uh, they said this, that the whole mountain was on fire on Mount Sinai. In fact, the Hebrew writer echoes this. You don't have to turn there. But listen to what the Hebrew writer says about this mountain in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated, that the word should not be spoken to them any more. The Hebrew writer says, There they stood at Mount Sinai. They hear the thunder. They see the lightning. They see the cloud. They see the smoke. They see the fire. It's the exact thing that Ezekiel saw in chapter number 1. You say, what about the things that were missing? Well, here they are on Mount Sinai. They couldn't see the wheels because the wheels were buried there in the mountain. The wheels were amongst, I'm sure, Sinai. is like any other mountain. It has trees. It has cover. Couldn't see the uh, cherubims because there again, uh, evidently the throne room was at such a location that when they walked up the mountain, they could be level with it. So it's uh, evidently something sitting lower than what Ezekiel saw when he saw it up above him past the firmament of glass. I think what we're looking at, and I think anybody that'll look at their Bible uh, and be uh, academically and scripturally honest would say this too, we're looking at the throne room of God. Now you say, preacher, that's good, that's academic, but what does that say to me? Well, notice what it said to them. Look at chapter number 19 again of the book of Exodus. We'll get to preaching in a moment. You just stick with me. This is your homework. Amen? This is your homework. You remember what that was like when you was in school? This is the homework. So you stick with me and we'll preach here in a second. Look at chapter number 19 again. Look at verse number 21. What was the message that the throne room gave? And, you know, we find this message is sort of different depending on the throne room. In fact, we find that when Isaiah goes into the throne room, the message is this, uh, that this is the Lord God of hosts which liveth forever. Uzziah the king had died. Isaiah's life uh, was literally on, on, on teetering on the point of possible despair. The greatest king in uh, recent history of the nation of Judah had died. Isaiah doesn't know what he's going to do. And the message of the throne room is this. Uzziah may have died. The throne room may be changing hands down there. But thank God that the throne room up here will never change hands. The same God that's been on the throne since before the beginning of time, Isaiah, He's still on the throne today. Isn't it good to know when your world gets shook up a little bit that God's still on the throne? When you go in with the Hebrew writer, what's the message that's given? The Bible says that there's a rest for the people of God, and they should enter into that rest. And it says, uh, lest uh, any of you uh, should leave a promise because of unbelief. And it says that the Word of God is quicker and uh, is, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. What it's saying is this, as we live this life, as we seek to enter into the rest that's afforded us through the act of justification in the person of Jesus Christ, as we seek to enter into the finished work of Calvary, we're already saved. But let me tell you something, we don't always act like we're saved. Just because we don't act like we're saved, that don't mean we're not saved. But just because we are saved, that don't mean we're always going to act like we're saved. Are you and so uh, the Word of God says when those times come and you've messed up 
and the Word of God has cut you, let us therefore come boldly under the throne room of grace. I'm glad there's a throne room of grace. Here John is on the Isle of Patmos in exile. All of the apostles are dead. He's an old man. He's the last of his kind. And God draws him up into the throne room of glory and lets him see that in the end times that throne will still be occupied. We go with Ezekiel. Ezekiel's without a temple to minister in. He's a priest. Whole life is vested in that temple and the temple's been destroyed and God brings the throne room to where he's at. God shows a little goodness towards him and says, it's all right, Ezekiel, there's still a throne room to minister. What's the message of this throne room? Look at chapter 19, look at verse 21. The Word of God says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds about the mount, and sanctify it. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down. Thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee. But let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. We see not only the character of the throne room, but we see the caution of this throne room. What's the message that this throne room conveys? Now, don't get worried. We're going, we're going to preach you right on into grace here before the message is over. But here under the Old Testament law, the message is this, that sin-fallen man has no entrance into the throne room of God. Sin-fallen man cannot go into the presence of God. He was to go into the presence of God in his condition. God would break forth upon him. The holiness of God would obliterate him. He'd be struck dead in a moment. Now you say, wait a minute, preacher. If I read my Bible right, I read that more than just Moses and Aaron went up into the mount. Oh, yes, more than Moses and Aaron went up into the mount. But I want you to see this. There was one that could go in the presence of God. You know, sometimes as you study Moses and Aaron, you see that they sort of, they were brothers, but sometimes they're sort of seen as one person. When God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh, He sends Aaron to do the talking for. And they're seen sort of as one person. Or could we maybe say this? I think in a lot of ways, Moses is a type of Christ. Don't you believe that? In fact, the Word of God says that, that, one of the, uh, that uh, the Lord would raise up a prophet just like Moses. And that prophet was the Lord Jesus Christ. I know He's the Son of God. I'm not denying that. But I'm merely, the Bible called Him also a prophet. And He is a prophet. And Aaron, in some ways, typifies the Holy Spirit. He which does the speaking. He which does the communicating. You say, who typifies God the Father? The Lord that sent them. And so in many ways, what the Lord is saying here is not just anybody can come into my presence, but Moses, he can come into my presence. We're going to see here in a little while how Moses did something that allowed more than just him into his presence. But what's the message? The message is you cannot come up. You cannot come into my presence. You in and of yourself, you are insufficient. You are in iniquity. You are, uh, you are without permission to enter into the presence of God. You know what salvation by works, really, if you follow that theology of salvation by works to the end, you know it condemns every one of us. Because there's not a one of us. There's not a one of us that, that ought to be able to go into the presence of God through the merit of our own works. There's not a single person. 
Where do you draw the line? You know where most people that believe in salvation by works, you know where most people draw the line? They draw the line a little worse than they think they are. They say, everybody that's a little bit worse than me, they're the ones that are dying and going to hell. But if you're about where I'm at or a little better, then you'll be all right. You know the problem with that is you're always going to find somebody a little better than you and somebody a little worse than you. Uh, the book of James teaches us that if you break one part of the law, it, it's, it, it equates to breaking the entirety of the law. If you've sinned once, that's enough to condemn a man. To, and listen, even if you've never sinned, you're a sinner by nature, not just by action. You're condemned by who and what you are. So we see the caution of this throne room. Well, look in chapter number 20. We're not going to read all this, but what's the creed of this throne room? Why did God come down? He comes down, He sits down on the mountain, then He tells the people, don't come near me. That seems a little uh, mixed signals, doesn't it? What's God saying? Well, most of you are familiar with chapter number 20. In fact, some folks, it's the only portion of Scripture they've ever even heard. But He begins to give them His judgments and statutes in chapter number 20. You've heard it before, but look what it says in verse number 1. And God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down. Now, you know where you're at, don't you? We don't have to read every bit of it. But you know where you're at. We're reading the Ten Commandments. We see it, or we used to, posted upon courthouses. Uh, when, even hanging in schools. Some of you remember when you could see the Ten Commandments hanging on the walls of a schoolhouse. God begins to give the creed the conditions of His throne room. He says, here I am in my holiness, in my righteousness, and in my justice. And no one at the bottom of that mountain is worthy to come up except for Moses. But if you want to be worthy, here is my standard that you're to live to. And he goes and he gives the Ten Commandments. They encompass, in some ways, they are representative of every portion of the law. In fact, we see in verses 1 through 7, we see the moral law. That's, God, that's how man deals with God. And we see that he says, no other gods before me. Don't bow down. Don't make any graven images. Don't take my name in vain. We have the moral law. Then we see the ceremonial law in verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. By the way, do you know that of all the Ten Commandments, the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not reinforced in the New Testament is uh, verse number 8. It is the Sabbath day. You say, why is that, preacher? Because Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest. The Sabbath was modeled after God's act in creation. God created for six days and then He rested. And the Hebrew writer says that the same way that God created for six days and then rested, we have served under the law for six days, but now Christ, who is the completer and perfecter and fulfiller of the law, has come and died in our stead and we rest in His righteousness and there's no reason to, uh, to observe the Sabbath anymore because uh, He which the Sabbath pictured has now come and has shown us what true rest is. We see the ceremonial law. Verses 12 through 17, you have the civil law that is given. How man deals with one another. And in these Ten Commandments, you have sort of an overview of the Old Testament law. May I remind you, there was over 600 uh, statutes and principles in the Old Testament law. Sometimes folks get to thinking like the rich young ruler, all these have I kept from my youth up. Uh, well, you may, uh, chances are you haven't even kept all ten of those. <laughs> 
But even if you had, you sure haven't kept all 600 and some odd commandments in the Old Testament. You say, why do you say this, preacher? God is showing us a truth here. The book of Galatians tells me this, that the law was my schoolmaster to bring me unto Christ. God sits down on the mount in His throne room. He says, this is who I am. This is what I am. This is my power. This is my glory. And if you want to come into my presence right now, you die. But if you can live up to this standard, you can enter into my presence. The problem is this. Not a one of us can live up to that standard. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. What do you think the Romans writer is talking about when he says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God? He's not just saying we can't be as glorious as God. What he's saying is this. God sat down in His glory and gave a law for us to keep if we were going to enter into His glory and into His presence. But we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We see not only the character and caution and creed of the throne room, but then we see something interesting in verse number 1 of chapter 24. Now, you can take your time and read all the way from where we left off in chapter 20 to chapter 24, and it's very, very much worth your time. But God is giving various statutes. God has not yet instituted all of the ceremonial law. He'll go on to do that in the building of the tabernacle and in the book of Leviticus. But but heretofore, He's basically giving the moral and practical law and the civil law. And He does that in these three chapters uh, that lead up to chapter number 24. But in chapter number 24, God does something very unusual. He says in verse number 1, And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship afar off. Now, that's unusual. You say, why? Because just a few verses earlier, just a couple chapters earlier, God said no one can come up. Just Moses and Aaron, they're the only ones that can come up into my presence. The priests can't come up. The people can't come up. But here we have both classes of people represented in Nadab and Abihu, who are priests, the sons of Aaron, and in the 70 elders of Israel, who are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God looks at them and God says, come up into my my presence. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God wants us in His presence. It tells me that God's heart beats for the sinner, for the lost individual. God heart, God's heart, it beats for sin-fallen man. And so God calls them up. But we have something interesting. We see first off the exclusion of the law. Moses says this. It says in verse number 2, And Moses alone shall come near the Lord. The law never had the capacity to bring men into the presence of God truly. God would go on to establish a throne room here on earth, wouldn't He? And there He would meet with mankind, but He would not meet with just anybody. He would meet with only the high priest once a year, the book of Hebrews says, and that not without blood. Only the high priest could come into the presence of God through the shed blood. The law excluded everyone else from the presence of of the Lord other than the high priest. Let me say that that's exactly what the law does today. The law excludes men from the presence of the Lord. In fact, you and I, and I'd say just about everybody in this room, we would have been excluded just by virtue of the blood that runs through our veins because most of us were Gentiles. Oh, we might have tried to proselyte to Judaism, but that was kind of hard to do when every Jew that you met treated you like you was a dirty dog and a filthy pig. It excluded people. The Bible, Paul said this, that unto the Jews was given the oracles and the covenants. 
God gave them unto the Jewish people. You and I as Gentiles, we would have been excluded from the law. Notice, secondly, the expectation of the law. What does it say there in uh, verse number 1? It says, And seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. That's what the law expects. In fact, let me say this, we see not only the expectation of the law, but we see the extent of the law, because that's all that the law can expect. Now, when we get down into verse number 10 and verse number 11, we don't find just worship, we find fellowship. But here in verse number 1, all we see is worship set forth because all that the Old Testament law could do was beckon somebody to worship afar off from the presence of God. In fact, you'll find if you study the Old Testament tabernacle and you study the Levitical rites and the Levitical priesthood, you'll find that there are so many hoops to jump through. You had to be the right person. You had to be of the right bloodline. You had to have the right pedigree. You had to have the right history. Then you had to go through and do all the right things. There were so many hoops to jump through to get any kind of contact with God. What did the law do? The law could not bring us close to God. It could not bring us into the presence of God. All it could do is set God on Mount Sinai and say, there He is, there He is, He's holy, He's righteous, He's just, and you can't go into His presence because you're wicked, you're sinful, and you're vile, so stand at the bottom of the mountain and worship ye afar off. And you know, that's what a work salvation does too. All it can do is beckon folks to worship afar off because they'll forever feel insufficient to be in the presence of God. Let me say this. I'm never in and of myself worthy of the Lord. But Jesus Christ, He is worthy of the Lord. He is the Lord, but He's worthy. Paul preached to us about justification, didn't he? Justified through Jesus Christ by the faith of the Son of God. We're placed in Him. And when we're placed in... Listen, you can't get no closer to the throne room than being placed in the one that sits on the throne. The law could only beckon men to worship afar off. So God has looked at Moses and He said, I want you and I want Nadab and Abihu and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel. I want you to come up and I want you to worship afar off. Moses, you're the only one that can come into my presence in this way. He is typifying Christ who had access to God uh, when we did not have access to God. But Moses says, I don't just want to go into your presence. I want to bring Aaron into your presence. I want to bring Nadab into your presence. I want to bring Abihu into your presence. I want to bring the 70 elders of Israel or by virtue of, uh, of their type and their symbolism, it's like he's saying, I want to take all these people and I want to make them priests and kings in your presence so that they can be in your throne room and so that they can minister in your presence. And so what does he do? In the next few verses, we see the covenant of the throne room. I want you to notice verse number three. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. I want you to notice, first off, we see a broken law. They said, We'll do it. But God knew that was not true. We're going to see here in a moment, they're going to enter into a covenant. But I want you to stop and think about how gracious our God is. God enters into a covenant with people He knows is going to break it. But do you know why? Listen carefully now, because when God entered into that covenant, He was not entering into that covenant with the nation of Israel. 
he was entering into that covenant with Moses. Moses was the one that was applying this covenant. You say, well, what does that mean to me, preacher? Remember that Moses is a type of Christ. God has entered into a covenant with mankind. But he didn't enter that with just any particular member of mankind. Instead, the Bible tells us of Jesus Christ that it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. So when God entered into a covenant with mankind, he didn't enter into it with me. He didn't enter into it with you. But he did enter into it with the Son of God, who was also the Son of Man, who was born of the seed of Adam, who was born of humanity. I understand he did not have a sin nature. I'm well aware of that. But just because he was the Son of God, that didn't make him any less the Son of Man. And so just as Adam, as the federal head of humanity, spiraled man into depravity, Christ as the second man, as the federal head of humanity, entered into a blood covenant with the holy God the Father and paid for your sins and for mine. You say, I don't know if I believe that, preacher. Well, we'll just read a little bit more and you will. We see the broken law. You couldn't keep the law. I couldn't keep the law. No one could keep the law. The children of Israel say, we'll keep the law. But they already hadn't kept the law. I mean, it was just going to be a few... I mean, listen now. If this is not an indictment on the wicked heart of mankind, I don't know what is. There they are at the foot of Mount Sinai with the glory of God upon it. And they go to Aaron and they say, make us gods which brought us up out of Egypt. They weren't even going to leave the mountain before they failed. You say, oh, I'm good, preacher. I'm good. I go in, I ask forgiveness for the few sins I commit, and then I'm good for a few weeks. Let me tell you something. You probably don't even, you probably sin before you get up off your knees. You don't even leave the presence. You say, I don't know about that. Well, the Bible says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. You say, oh, that's not the context. No, but it's still true. We all have sins of omission as well as sins of commission. We see the broken law. What do they do about that? Look at verse number 4. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. We see the broken law, but we see the bullock slain. What do you do about a broken law? Blood must be shed. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So you know what he does? He sets up, he builds an altar that is representative of God. Then he builds twelve pillars that is representative of the nation of Israel. And he's about to enter into a covenant. You remember what the preacher said about... If you was at revival, you remember what the preacher said about entering into a covenant. They would take an animal, they would flay it into two different sides and then flay it in pieces. They'd lay one side on one side, one side on the other side, and then they would get together and walk arm in arm the length of that sacrifice. And they were entering into a blood covenant that whatever they were declaring as they walked through that blood, they would keep that promise. Well, now here they are. The presence of God is on Mount Sinai. It can't right well just get up and walk through a blood sacrifice. Here's the nation of Israel at the foot of the mount. They can't even get into the hole. They can't even get into the presence of God to enter a covenant. But here's Moses. He stands as the mediator. And so he builds an altar for God. He builds 12 pillars for the nation of Israel. Then he takes and the bullocks are slain. But that's not enough. Look what it says. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. 
And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. There they are. The bullocks have been slain. The altar on one side. The twelve pillars on the other side. The children of Israel are standing around. Uh, Moses takes the blood. He puts half of it. And by the way, you don't have to believe this, but, but I believe that the altar that he built was a lot closer to God than it was to the children of Israel. Because that's why he had to put it in basins. He takes half of it and places it upon the altar. And he takes the other half and carries it down the mountain. And he takes the the Hebrews writer says, he takes water and thins it so that it'll uh, go all the way. And he takes hyssop and he dips in it and he reads all the words of the law. That's what would happen with a covenant. You'd walk arm in arm, declare the things you was going to do. And so uh, he reads all the words of the law. He says, this is what God expects. This is what God requires. The children of Israel says, all that the Lord hath said, that will we do. We'll be obedient. Then he takes and they can't walk through that blood. So he takes hyssop and he sprinkles it upon them and it consecrates them under this covenant. The Hebrew writer, though, also tells us this, that a testament is of no force while the testator liveth. The Hebrew writer likens a covenant to a last will and testament for us. It says that the testator must die for us to enter into it. You say, preacher, what has to happen Well, man has to die on the cross, and God has to die on the cross. And if both of them die, then you can enter into that covenant. You say, what happened when I got saved, preacher? My old man was nailed to the cross with the Son of God. He died in my place, and He took my old man with Him. Not to say I don't still have a sin nature. Not to say I'm not still sin-fallen. But representatively, it was the death nail in my flesh when He died upon the cross of Calvary. And now I'm enjoined into this covenant. We see the covenant of, and then finally, and I'm just going to touch on these. And I like having these lights here because I can't see the clock. Look at verse number 9. I'm going to come in tonight and they're going, they're going to be gone. <laughs> the Bible says this. Now remember, the bullock has been slain and the blood has been applied. And now what happens? Then, boy, let me tell you something. Your King James Bible is written right. Then. Could I say this then and only then? Before, they could not go up into the presence of God. God said, Moses and Moses alone can come into my presence. But now that Moses has acted as mediator, and as the federal head of the nation of Israel has entered into a covenant with God based upon the shed blood, then, and then alone, then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. The Bible says, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. You say, oh, preacher, I don't know if, I don't know if they saw the same thing that Ezekiel saw. Well, let me, I know, I know listen, I'm, I'm, I'm done preaching. I've run out of time. But can I just read to you what Ezekiel said about it? In Ezekiel chapter number 1, he says this in verse uh, number, let's see, 26, and above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. They go and they see the God of Israel. 
Because of the shed blood, they're given three things, and I'll give them to you and I'll be done. I want you to notice, first off, they're given pardon from God. Look at verse number 11. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. You know what it means? It means he did not strike them dead because the blood had been shed. You know that you and I have entrance into the throne room in presence of God. Not because of our righteousness, not because of our goodness, not because we're... And listen now, not because of our broken promises either. The children of Israel said, all that the Lord hath said, well, we do. And I think God must... He must have just chuckled and said, no, they won't. No, they won't. But if Moses will enter a covenant with me, if Moses will shed the blood, and as their federal head, if he'll enter a covenant with me, then I'll not lay my hand upon them. They're given pardon from God. Only through the shed blood can we have pardon with God. Secondly, they're given a perception of God. It says they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. The lost man has his, his opinions about God. Only the believer has the revelation about God. When I say revelation, I don't mean some kind of charismatic nonsense, something God tells me He won't tell you. I mean what the Bible says about who God is. That's the reason things are so radically different between what the world thinks about God and what we know to be true about God. Ours comes from the Bible. And so he's given a perception of God. Now he can see God. You remember when you got saved? You remember that? It was like somebody gave you a new set of eyeballs. All of a sudden you saw God everywhere. All of a sudden everything was different. And you were given the perception of God. Then finally, and I like this. Let me tell you something. If you and I were both more spiritual, I'd park on this next phrase and I'd preach for four hours on it. They're given peace with God. What does it say they did? Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. Eat and drink? What, did they pack them a turkey sandwich? No. What did they eat and drink? They ate the sacrifice that had been given. At the end of this month, we're going to observe something we call the Lord's Supper. A lost person, they can't partake. Oh, they, they, can eat, they can eat the crackers and they can drink the grape juice. But they can't partake in the Lord's table. You know why? Christ said, this do in remembrance of me. You remember that night before He was crucified, and He passed the grape juice, and He passed the bread, and He said this, this is the blood of the New Testament. He says there was an Old Testament with its blood that was shed. There was an Old Covenant with its blood that was shed. But now Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and Moses and Aaron, hey, they're not eating the blood of the Old Testament. Now they're in the presence of God. Drinking, uh, they're drinking the blood of the New Testament. Amen. They're given a peace with God. And they're eating of the sacrifice. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let me just say this, and I know this may have been a little bit academic this morning. But let me say that the only hope that anybody has is in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can seek after any number of things. But if you seek salvation in anything other than the blood, then the law says to you what it said for 3,500 years. You cannot pass. You cannot come into my presence. You are not welcome. You cannot be here. What do you think that veil said in the tabernacle? That veil, it, it functioned in the same way that the boundaries did around Sinai. It stood there as a barrier from the presence of God. Preacher, how do I get past that barrier? 
Preacher, how can I know God? How can I fellowship with God? Well, there's only one way. You've got to get through that barrier the same way that any man's got through that barrier. The Bible says that when he cried aloud and said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to be interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Bible says that the rocks rent. The Bible says that the earth turned black. The Bible says that the earth quaked and the veil in the temple was rent. That and that alone, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, can offer you entrance into His presence. Anything short of that is short of the glory of God. 